but it's kind of a difficult time of the year to figure out what to preach on when you're just doing a one-off because there's two types of people in the world. There's uh, the type of people that say Christmas time starts the day after Thanksgiving and not before. Santa needs to stay in his lane and let it go. And then there's some of you out there that like the day after Easter are like, can I put up my tree yet or do I need to wait another week or something before that's acceptable? And so I was like, what, what do I preach on that can, you know, bring people together on both sides of this cultural war? Um, and so what, what I landed on to, to look at uh, as a group today is uh, a passage in Luke uh, chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. And I think it works because it is part of the birth narrative of Christ. It is a Christmas passage, but at the same time, it is Mary's uh, song of thanksgiving to God. So see, it works. Uh, we can do it both. But no, it's, it's an amazing passage uh, that God has given us that Mary responds to what God is doing in her world uh, and in her life. So if you'll open your Bible to Luke 1 um, to follow along. If you don't have a Bible but would like one, there are some on the sides of the tech booth in the back. You are more than welcome to grab that. And if it would be helpful to you, you can keep that as our gift to you. Uh, when you get there, you're looking for, if your Bible has section uh, headings or titles, it's probably called either Mary's Song or that Magnificant, uh, which is kind of the, the Latin traditional name for it. It stems from the uh, Latin translation of the New Testament that the church used for uh, over a thousand years. Um, just kind of stuck with that. So that's a piece of Bible trivia you can break out at Thanksgiving to impress people and watch them you know, not be impressed at all. But you can try. Um, but before we uh, read it, let's, let's take a moment and go before our God in prayer. Uh, Father, we come before you, uh, knowing that um, the many of us gathered here today come from different situations and different backgrounds and different immediate contexts. Some of us come in really excited to be here. Some of us come in um, less than excited to be here. And some of us just are here, and uh, we admit we're not here mentally. There's so much going on in this season with holidays and stuff that uh, our stress level is at the max. And so wherever uh, each and every one of us are, I just pray that you would meet with us, that this time would be helpful, uh, that your spirit would bring your words to life, um, that Mary uh, sings to you here, and that we would leave here uh, with a heart that's just a little more uh, able and apt uh, to sing as a response to what we see in Mary's song. Those things we pray in your son's name. Amen. Um, before we read, uh, I like to do, kind of on one-offs, just to give a little bit of context because uh, we're parachuting into this, uh, ch- this passage in the opening first couple of chapters of Luke, and we're just kind of looking at it, but what's going on around it? Uh, if you're familiar with the kind of first two chapters, it's the birth narrative of Christ, but it's actually more than that. Uh, it's not just about one birth, it's actually about two births. Uh, So Luke opens with a little greeting, and then he immediately launches into a a prophetic announcement from an angel about the birth of who will become John the Baptist to uh, his mother Elizabeth and her husband Zechariah. And then he moves from that to another prophetic angelic announcement, uh, the one that pronounces that Jesus is going to be born to the Virgin Mary. And then he kind of continues his narrative and moves along, and he uh, narrates, kind of tells us the events surrounding the birth of John, and then tells us the events surrounding the birth of Christ. But right in the middle between the prophetic uh, portions, the prophetic announcements, and then telling us what actually happens in the birth events, we see this song that Luke interjects uh, into this this story. He essentially kind of takes a time out from the action of his narrative to give us a glimpse to how Mary is responding in the midst of really having her world turned upside down. 
and how she responds to God's work in her life. Uh, so now let's read verse Luke chapter 1, verse 46. There we find this. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the hum- those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So one thing that's helpful, I think, this is kind of just a, a thought on Bible study in general uh, before looking at the, the exact words of the passage. But one thing is helpful as you read uh, the Gospels specifically is to sometimes ask yourself the question, why has the author chosen to tell us this story at this time? Uh, if you know John's Gospel, one book over in, in Scripture, his epilogue, kind of the very end, I think it's the last verse, but it may be just barely before that, uh, John makes this comment that if, G- if all the things that Jesus did in his time here on earth was written down, uh, the world would not be able to contain the scrolls. Basically, there's not enough paper to tell us all the things that Jesus did. And so the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, under the inspiration and guidance of the Holy Spirit, when they sat down to give us these accounts, had to be selective in saying, okay, what is it uh, that God would have me to write down for Christians of all time to know? Like, why, uh, what stories should we relate? And so as they did that, and the stories we now have, there's a time to ask a question, like, why uh, out of all the stories that Luke could have told, out of all the stories about happening or surrounding it, about Jesus' birth and about his infancy and all those time, uh, why is this one of the few that we get? And I think in this specific instance, uh, the function that this song uh, gives us is it kind of pauses Luke's narrative. It's easy to get carried away when you're reading kind of a, a little story about these, this happens and this happens and this happens, but Luke really punches the brakes and steps back and says, hey, we need to s- stop here for a moment and pause and, and look at what Mary says because Mary helps us understand the significance of what's going on. That This isn't just events that are impacting the life of Mary and the life of Elizabeth. Like anytime there's a birth, if you have had kids, uh, you know, that radically impacts your life, right? It just changes everything. There's before your kids came, and then there's life after your kids came. It's different. And so uh, Mary and Elizabeth and their families experience that, but it's not just about kind of their individual lives, what Luke is telling us. He's also not just telling us uh, kind of the story about, hey, look at how this family was transformed. Earlier in his um, account, Luke, I think it was 36, uh, Luke mentions that Mary, Jesus' mother, and uh, Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother, are relatives of some sort. Uh, sometimes we think, well, they were cousins, but actually, if that kind of is where your mind jumps, I can tell you that you grew up on the King James Version, because that uh, word was actually translated cousins in King James, but we've kind of gone back and say, actually, it's, we don't really know how they were related. We just know, Scripture tells us, they were relatives of some sort. Um, and so the events of Luke 1 and Luke 2 are going to forever change that family dynamic. I mean, this is radically miraculous events in both cases. Uh, Elizabeth and her husband Zechariah um, have, are older. They've been struggling with infertility their entire marriage. Uh, when the angel comes and tells Zechariah that he's, his wife is going to give birth, uh, he asks, he's like, how can this be? Because I'm old and my wife is advanced in years. It's a very politically correct way to say that. You're like, I'm old. 
she's advanced in years, you know, like he'd been married a little bit of time, we can tell, but he's like, this shouldn't occur, this isn't normal, and the angel says, no, this is going to be something that God does in your life, and on the radically kind of other stage of life, we find Mary, who receives a similar announcement that she's going to give birth, and she says, that that can't happen, like I'm not married, I'm actually a, a virgin, I can't give birth, and the angel tells her, no, this is what God is going to do in your life, there they're not just individual lives were turned upside down. Their family dynamic, whatever that was, would have been completely transformed. The conversation around the dinner table at Grandma's house that Thanksgiving would have been one for the ages as they just try and grapple with what is going on in their lives. But Luke says, no, it's, it's bigger than an individual. It's bigger than a family. It's even bigger than just this nation of Israel. This is what's going on is cosmic in scope. It's going to change everything about what we know about the world because God is upending um, all that we know in the climactic moment of his salvation project in order to redeem his creation. And as Mary kind of reflects on this is what God is doing, she invites us to celebrate that with her. But it starts personal, right? Just like for most of us, as we uh, reflect on what God is doing, we reflect on what he's doing in my life before we think bigger. It's what we see in verses 46, um, Starting there, she begins by saying, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. What, why? Why is she responding this way? She says, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. See, 40, verse 46 and 47 are her response to the truth that she expresses in verse 48. She is blown away by one single fact. She is amazed by the fact that God sees her. See, she has no reason to expect that God would do something mighty and powerful in her life. She wasn't a person of wealth. She wasn't a person of power. Uh, She didn't have influence in who she was. She was just a nobody from nowhere, yet God shows up in her life and does something amazing. She knows that all of what's going on is not because she is offering anything in particular that's special to God, but everything that's going on is a result of God's unmerited favor and grace that she's found in his eyes. And her response to this going, God, I don't know why you've chosen to do this in my life, um, but I'm going to respond to you. Her response in that is just pure praise, which right, that, that's the right answer. We know that it's the right answer. When God shows up and does something big, uh, if you've been around church, you're like, okay, I should praise him for this. But it's more in her uh, than just kind of knowing the right answer and doing that. She didn't just market what she's supposed to do on a test. It's beautiful. She has this beautiful response uh, that really stems from the depths of her being. Uh, the words soul and spirit that are used here are really kind of synonyms that Luke uses parallel to kind of reiterate his point. But what it's saying is kind of from her core, from her innermost parts, from uh, everything that's you know, possible in her, from the deepest part, she's responded by saying this. She feels it, that it's not just something that she knows and is acknowledging, yeah, God's doing something in my life. But she sees what God's doing, she hears this promise, and it grabs her affections and sets them on fire for her God. And she, she responds by saying, my soul magnifies the Lord. The word magnify that we read here kind of in other contexts and other places uh, can be used to mean like it's something that you grow or something that you enlarge, like you make bigger uh, with this verb, but Mary can't make God bigger. Like nothing that she can do, nothing that we can do can actually increase God, right? So what does she mean by kind of saying, how, how is she reflecting on this? What does she mean by using this particular word? I think what it is, is that as she reflects on this, as God has moved in an amazing way in her life, God is bigger to her. 
Like her affection for God, her convictions about God, uh, her devotion to God, her wonder at who God is has just been enlarged by what's going on. She goes, my mind is having to expand to comprehend the truths that God has given in my life. Um, I was thinking about like this. So uh, four or five years ago, probably, Andrea and I had the chance to go to Niagara Falls. Has anyone had the chance to do that? If you ever do have the chance, if you haven't been, um, I'd highly recommend that it. it's worth the effort and the time to get there. It's, it's an amazing natural landmark uh, in this country. But as you, you show up to Niagara Falls, you can kind of walk up and see it just right off the bat. You walk up to the edge and you, you look across uh, the water and you see the falls coming down. And it's uh, immensely impressive. I mean, it's this massive waterfall. It's beautiful. Uh, from the second you see it, you go, man, this really, the pictures don't do it justice. This is incredible to witness with my eyes. But then we also had the chance, you kind of go across to the other side where the falls actually is, and you can do a, um, a attraction or whatever you want to call it, called, I think it was Cave of the Winds, which you pay a little bit of money, because um, everything you have to pay a little bit of money, but they then take you and they drop you down an elevator shaft. You go down basically to the base of the falls, and then you walk across a series of catwalks, and you can get almost to where you could reach out and kind of lean over and touch the actual waterfalls coming down beside you. And it's really an amazing experience because you, you get down and they give you like a, a $1 poncho that I think a disgruntled employee like pokes a bunch of holes in or something because it doesn't work and you get soaked anyway. Um, but then as you get closer and closer to the falls, you're just overwhelmed first by the, the noise of it. Like Andrea and I are side by side and you're screaming at each other just trying to communicate and you can't make out what the other person is. It's just a deafening roar. And as you get closer and closer, um, kind of the mist becomes sharp is the only way I can describe it. Like the, the water is coming off so quickly off that falls and with so much power that it feels like someone's poking you in the face with just a little needle over and over again. Like, and you kind of, as I got closer, I just realized like, I would look at that and say, man, that's a really powerful waterfall. That's amazing. When you get close, you realize I had no conception of how powerful this waterfall actually was until I got up and can feel it. And I'm only feet away from this thing. Like this thing could crush my body if I got under it. It was radically transformative just in, in understanding what Niagara Falls was. And they didn't like, it's not that my appreciation for the falls went away uh, when I got down closer, but what I had appreciated from afar as I drew near and got closer and uh, came face to face with this thing grew and changed and was added to by my understanding of actually the scope of the power of this waterfall. I think it's the same as we draw near to God, as we see him do mighty things in the lives of people around us in our own life. Uh, maybe as we study scripture and something about what God is doing in the world and what he's done for us in Christ just clicks in a new way. Um, it's that same, we just, our conception of God is enlarged. And we go, man, look at what God has done for his people. And that leads to verse 49. Um, as Mary continues to reflect on what this means for her, she says, for behold, from now on, All generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. She continues to respond to God, and she blesses God's name and says his name is holy, not because of anything in particular about her circumstances, um, but just the fact that the God of the universe has seen her and has chosen to do work in her life. She says, I cannot uh, wrap my mind around the fact that God is doing something incredible in my life and around me and has chosen me to work in this way. And then she, she moves and kind of pivots in verse 50 uh, from thinking about what kind of God is doing in her own life. She pulls the camera back a little bit and starts thinking about what this means more broadly. 
she says, or yeah, in verse 50, she says this, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. What Mary, I think, is telling us in verse 50, that his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation, is saying, this isn't just my story. Like, this is my story. God is doing something unique in her life that he's done in no other lives. But it's unique in the the particulars about what God chose to do. It's not unique in kind of the form and the type in the way God has chosen to work in her life. This is how God, time and time and time again in Scripture, reveals that he chooses to work. He takes that which is weak in the eyes of the world, and he does something great and powerful with it. Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians writes this. He says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And he follows that in 2 Corinthians 12 uh, and says, God's power is made perfect in weakness. Right, and we see this all the way back. Uh, it's not just a New Testament idea. We see it going back to Abraham in the Old Testament, where God shows up and calls Abraham when he's 70 years old and says, I'm going to do something new and incredible in your life, that I'm going to call you and give you a new land, and I'm going to take your descendants and make them more innumerable than the stars, and through them, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Abraham at that time had no son, had no child, and said, God, how can this be? And God says, no, I'm going to do something so that my name is made great, through what I do, through you. Fast forward a few generations and you have Jacob, who the Bible describes as his name, I think literally means the, dece- the deceiver, a deceptive one. Like he's just a guy that uh, his ethics were questionable. We can say it at that in many uh, things in the account of his life. But God says, no, even I'm going to use you to uh, be the father to the 12 tribes of Israel, that my purposes are going to continue through your life and through your line. A little bit later, we have Rahab, who's a prostitute in Jericho, not even a member of the people of Israel. But God says, no, I'm going to bring salvation to my people through you and fulfill some promises through you. And then you're going to be brought into the family of God so that uh, she becomes mentioned in the genealogies of Christ as one of his ancestors. Uh, You have Ruth, a poor widow in the Old Testament, who, again, is not a member of the people of Israel, but is brought in, that she's redeemed, she's saved, uh, in a sense, and then, again, becomes a member of the, the family tree of Christ. Uh, David, who was the youngest son of his father, Jesse, that when Jesse hears that Samuel's going to come and uh, anoint a king of Israel from amongst his son, Jesse doesn't even bother to bring David in out of the field. Like, think about that therapy bill for a second. He's like, yeah, it's not going to be you. But God chose the one that even his own father said, no, it can't be this kid. God says, this is the exact one that I'm going to use and make some of my greatest promises to and make Israel's greatest king. God time and time and time again says, I'm going to take the weak. I'm going to take those uh, that no one would expect much from. I'm going to do something amazing in their life. And I'm going to be true to my grace and my promises that I give to them. So what does that look like here? What is it that God is doing? Well, Mary continues and she says this, that he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. And as Mary is, is thinking about what God is doing in her midst, she uses some very charged language here. Like at first uh, blush, at first glance, you can look at this and think, and this is almost revolutionary in its scope, talking about changing power structures, tearing things down, sending away the rich. Um, and some kind of movements throughout history have actually looked at that and said, well, that's what this means. But the way Luke actually kind of picks up these ideas, this is what Luke is using kind of Mary's song to introduce uh, ideas that he's going to develop throughout his gospel, saying the way we might expect God to do this 
is not the way that God actually works this thing out through Christ. It says Jesus is going to fulfill all that Mary is saying here. He's going to do it in unexpected ways. And, and we can spend kind of weeks looking at the Gospel of Luke on how that plays out over the upcoming chapters. But just so we can focus on this, if you'd allow me to uh, quote from one commentator. He said this, that toppling the mighty from their thrones does not mean that God turns the tables so that the weak and lowly can now reign over the great and mighty and subject them to the same humiliations. Instead, it means that God levels the playing field so that both are equal, and that the high and mighty might humble themselves before God and others to become part of God's redemptive plan in the world. And he quotes from another author saying, to be mighty here means that to be self-sufficient in no need of salvation. God raises the lowly, but the mighty do not recognize their lowliness. They desire to raise themselves up. The spirit of self-exaltation is the key to sinfulness in the gospel of Luke. And so Luke will kind of launch off of here and what Jesus says and what he does and show exactly how it is that God, through Christ, is choosing to do this. That he came not to overthrow uh, the government's at this time, but he came to overthrow our sinful hearts that are produce these corrupt systems and produce these oppressive um, things and to redeem uh, us as individuals. And then she also kind of uses this language to say, God has done all these things, so there's kind of a past tense thought to it that she's looking back and she's also looking forward. Because she wants us to reflect, she wants her hearers to say, "What well, this is what God has done for us in the past. Like, um, God has been faithful time and time again in the exodus to rescue us from other uh, conquerors and other times in our history where we've been endangered. God has always shown up and rescued his people of Israel that have, you know, were never the strongest, never the, the fastest, never the best, but God has been faithful to them. But she also looks forward, and a lot of kind of her language echoes what we find in the prophets, where the prophets say God has saved us, God has done these mighty things, God has done much, but there's more left that God intends to do. There's a day in the prophets, uh, they say, is coming that we'll see a full restoration, that it won't be temporary or it won't be partial, that evil will end for good. And Mary is saying that day is finally here. What is happening is God's work, through God's work in her life, is going to bring about God's salvation that was promised Again, way back in Genesis 12, that we're finally beginning to realize what that'll finally look like. And then Luke, again, the author, launches out from here as he continues his gospel to show that Jesus has come to do what God has promised as God coming to earth to die for our salvation. Again, that's, that's jumping ahead into more of the gospel. So let's, let's finish up here. Let's look at the last two verses um, of, of this song and see what we've got. There, Luke writes this, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So we get kind of at the conclusion of Mary's song, this summary statement about what God has chosen to do. So why is God doing this? Why is God doing this mighty work in her life? Is it because Mary was great? No, she says, I, I have a humble estate. I had nothing to offer. Is it because of Israel's greatness? No, they're described too as his humble servant because of their faithfulness to God after he called them? No, the Old Testament basically is a story over and over again about how much Israel failed to keep up their end of the bargain. They did nothing to earn it. God's motivation to do these mighty works is because of, in remembrance of his mercy. It's just out of his character. This is who God is. God acts in a way to save the weak, to save those in need. Uh, David in Psalm 103, verse 10, writes this, that God does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to his 
iniquities. See, all that God has done, all that God is doing here, and all that God is going to do, both in Mary's life and in our lives, is in line with what God has always been doing because he has promised to act in such a way. That God created this world and then we rebelled. But God says, no, I'm not going to let that be the last word. I'm going to come and save and to redeem. That through a coming Messiah that comes in the person of Christ, that God would deal with my sin once and for all, that through his life, death, and resurrection, he'd purchase the forgiveness and allow me to be grafted into the family of God, that as Scripture says, that we who were once far off can now uh, have the privilege to be called the children of God, that we become spiritual descendants of the promise given to Abraham. See, Mary glimpses this reality, and in whatever way that she understood exactly what God was going to do, I mean, she heard the announcement for the angel and is trying to process through all this. She goes, this is the biggest thing that the world has ever seen, and God has chosen me to be a part of that. And so that stirs her in her, her heart to respond with this song of praise. So how does this song of praise, Mary's response, how does it stir us? I think a few things that we can kind of take away. Uh, one thing that struck me about Mary's song and how she comprehends this uh, is a hope that we would share her amazement that God sees her, that God sees me, that God sees you. Psalm 34 uh, says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Like it's unbelievable that God of the universe, the God who created all this, the God who sustains everything at every moment would actually look down upon you and me, and not just see us, not just know we exist, but actually care about what goes on in our lives. Uh, a little bit later in Luke 12, Jesus is talking about anxiety to people. Uh, and, and one of the encouragements he gives them um, basically is that uh, God is a God that knows even the most insignificant details of your life and of my life. And the way he expresses that, he says that uh, God has numbered even the hairs on your head. Uh, and I know that's more reassuring for some of you guys a while back than it is today. Uh, but the, the thought is still there. Like God knows every tiniest detail about your life, that God knows them and God actually cares. So this is such an unbelievable reality, unbelievable thought that's actually occasionally thrown at Christianity from uh, atheists and non-believers as a, as a criticism. Like the, the argument goes something like, can you actually believe that with all we know about the universe and all we know about how many stars and planets and galaxies and how it all works, like in the scope of everything, why in the world would you believe that God cares not just about one little planet, but God cares about one person on this planet out of seven billion lives? He, really, you, you think it's likely that God cares about your life. And I think our response to that is like, it's not, not likely, but God has said that he does it. He said that this is who he is. That even in the midst of that amazing power, amazing might, he is such a God that cares and loves each and every one of us. It makes no sense that God would pay us any mind at all, and it should blow our minds. And this isn't like a new thought. It's not like we invented the telescope and we're suddenly like, oh man, it's really hard to believe that God's cares about us because you know how big the universe is now. Um, even in Psalm 8, David wrote this. He says, when I consider the heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. And that's one of the most amazing promises in scripture is that we do serve a God that knows and a God that cares. Second, I think um, that we can praise God because from what Mary tells us here, 
we can praise God because he's a God that fulfills his promises. That what God says he will do, he will be faithful to do. And this is phenomenal news for us because God has said much about what he will do for those of us that are in Christ. That if we are trusting in God, if we are trusting in Jesus Christ as our Savior, God has promised so many things to us, that he will be faithful to us, that he will complete his work in us, that he will redeem us, that he will save us, that all of his purposes are for our good and his glory. And we follow a God that didn't just say these things uh, and then forget about him, but he is a God that will follow them through. He is a promise-keeping God that is faithful when we are faithless and that we can rely on his character and not ours. Third, I think if these two realities are true, if God sees us and cares and that God is a promise-keeping God, then we can have joy and we can have, give thanks regardless of the circumstances we currently find ourselves in. See, one of the things that I was thinking about with Mary's song, um, it's this amazing hymn of thanksgiving, but it probably happens in a time that's very difficult in Mary's life. Like, yes, it'd be amazing for God to show up and, and, and make these promises to you. There's a lot of joy in that. But her aftermath of that is a pregnant, unwed mother, or will become a mother, um, trying to explain to friends and family and all this what God has told her he's going to do. And a few months from now that uh, her and Joseph have to flee to Egypt to a foreign land in order to escape uh, the basically regional king uh, that's trying, seeking to kill Jesus because he views him as a political threat. So they have to give up everything they know and, and flee um, as refugees. At some point, it uh, seems, we, as best we can tell, that Joseph, uh, Jesus' earthly father, uh, dies because he, Mary appears to be a widow later on in the Gospels. Uh, she has to eventually watch her son be arrested and murdered for nothing that he did, just um, basically out of the corruption of the, the system of their day. Uh, we can look at Mary, and we can kind of look at the spiritual things and say, oh man, how amazing is this? It's Christmas time. All of these things are great. Uh, but if you work at, look at Mary from a, a perspective of just like how her life is going, man, it would have been so hard to do this, that what God is calling her to do would have been immeasurably difficult. I doubt many of us would want to sign up for that, to trade places with her. But even in these dark times, these difficult times where she's trying to figure out how to navigate these places, she responds with this amazing hymn of thanksgiving. She's stirred to worship God from her inmost being. Um, and like her, this, this world for us will bring trials and troubles. I mean, it's one of the promises of the New Testament that in this world we will have difficulty. Uh, that looks different. It's different measures for you or for me. It's different uh, sources that'll look different in your life and mine. Um, but because we follow a God that has said that these things are for our good, that has, God has said that he will be with us through that, has said that uh, these are only temporary and there's greater things for us at the end, uh, we can realize what is most true about our life uh, is greater than our circumstances that our joy and our thanksgiving can surpass our immediate context because we know that something is greater just around the corner. Uh, Paul writes later on in the New Testament that these light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so we can, we can rejoice in what God is doing amongst us. And then finally, uh, just one more, more kind of concluding thought is I think that it's helpful for us or it's that we can best understand God's work in my life and in your life as we find our place 
in God's grand story of what he's doing in creation. Uh, If you'll allow me to quote from another commentary, uh, it says this, Mary's words specifically recall the promise to Abraham, and it takes the story back to the beginning of Israel. The present and future must be understood in light of God's merciful intervention and faithfulness in the past as revealed in Scripture, that Mary finds her way to faith because she reads the signs of the past rightly. The covenant with Abraham is a reminder that God's mercy will extend not only to every generation, but to all people. And just like Mary finds her way to faith in contemplating how God is working through history, I think oftentimes we find our way to faith by understanding the same, that her understanding of what God's work in her life meant was anchored in the knowledge of God's promises to his people and that his actions to, to bring that about started way before she came on the scene. Just like in our case, that God is just continuing to work through history to bring about the end that he has promised and that he seeks to, to achieve. And if we lose sight of that, it's sometimes hard to understand uh, what God is trying to accomplish in my life because I feel like it's just me out on an island rather than I'm a part of God's grand narrative. Then um, that somehow God is using the circumstances of my life to weave a picture that is a, greater than anything that I can comprehend just in my immediate context. And I think this also has an impact when uh, kind of in how we approach the Bible often. Uh, growing up, I don't know if this was implicit that I just kind of picked up or if this was something explicitly that somebody taught me at one point. Um, but, and this may just be kind of my biography, but I think others feel this way too. But uh, I was taught that I needed to spend time daily in the Word of God, which is a great thing. But somewhere along the lines, I picked up an idea that kind of the purpose uh, or the main goal of spending time daily in the Word was to find something from that passage that I read that would apply to my daily context, like that God would use for my day. And I think, in a sense, I mean, that's a great thing. I, I love application. I think that every part of God's Word can speak to us in today's day and age. But the problem was thinking that kind of my everyday... Uh, rested on my ability to find something to apply to my life that day. Uh, The difficulty was there were a lot of days that I read something in Scripture, and I was like, I have no idea what to do with this. And a lot of the kind of times in the Word spent like, just felt like busts, and it became very discouraging. Like, there are passages in Scripture that are really hard to look at in 5 or 10 or 15 or even 30 minutes or an hour, however long you have, and figure out how exactly it applies to your daily life today. Uh, Have you ever read Kings? I mean, really? My first time through the Bible, you're reading, I'm reading through Kings, and I find this story about Elisha and a group of, like, teenagers that make fun of him for being bald, and some bears come down and eat the kids. I was like, what am I supposed to do with that? Like, like what's the application to my life today? Don't make bald jokes? I already did, so I'm in trouble. Um, but, like, seriously, you go, God, what are you doing with this passage in my life? And I think the only way when we come to some of those passages that we're like, I don't know what to do with this, is we have to first, to understand what God is saying in that, we have to first kind of say, okay, how does this fit into God's greater story, uh, every piece that I understand of it from Genesis to Revelation? And I know um, we're all growing in that. And so there are going to be some days that we read Scripture and go, I have no idea what I'm supposed to do with that today. But you know what? Talking about God's promises, God says His Word never returns void, and He's going to faithfully be faithful to us and complete His good work for us. So it is okay to read Scripture and go, God, I don't understand anything about what I just read, but I believe this is your word, and I believe it is for my good, and I'm going to trust you that you are going to do something with the 15 minutes, the five minutes, the two minutes, whatever it is that I invested in reading your scripture today. 
And that's enough. Like, it's not a loss to read the passage of Scripture and go, I don't know how this impacts my life today. God will put that in our mind and use that somehow over the days and years and months uh, and decades to come to do something and to make you more into a person who looks like his son. So that's okay to have those days where we read Scripture and just go, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with that. Trust it to God and let him do with it what he will. Um, so this is Mary's song. I mean, it's an amazing passage that she responds, that kind of fits into this narrative and says, and God is doing something amazing in our midst. And that's something that we'll begin to celebrate next week as we start Advent. Um, but it should impact us today and now as we leave here and go to families for Thanksgiving, maybe, or to your coworkers tomorrow, that we're taking a message of this God who sees us and who cares and who responds to us. That's a world that we desperately, a word we desperately need to take with us as we leave. Let's pray.